Welcome everyone to Pen Pen Pals for our final, our ultimate installment of Paranoia Agent. I'm Alex. Hi, this is Blixa. Hey, this is Ben. Uh, and today we're going to cover episodes 12 and 13 of this Satoshi Kon masterpiece. Uh, uh, with us, we've been really looking forward to having this guest on again uh, to help us deconstruct this. Please welcome Theta. Hi guys, thank you for having me back. We're so excited. So before we get into this, have you seen this before or did you watch it just to come on for us? I'd seen it when it came out, however many moons ago that was, but I was not really prepared to make sense of what I was watching, I think. And it's one of those things I always kind of wanted to get back to. Certainly the opening credits have lived rent-free in my head for all this time. <laughs> yeah. So this was this made a nice opportunity to revisit it. And I definitely, from the very first episode, was like, yeah, I definitely was not ready to watch this back in the day. That's a real head-scratcher, you know? Like, thinking about the audience that was seeing this as it aired without knowing anything about it, that's nuts. Yeah, I imagine week to week, especially, especially as you get into the middle of it, and... <laughs> It seems to go into more of an episodic thing versus how it begins and wondering where are we heading with this amalgamation of psychological thriller kind of things or ghost stories or police procedural at times, all with this obvious uh, overshadowing ambiguity about what do I, is this story about? What is that? You know, you, when you get back to like, I think episode five, I want to say when they seem to catch Shonen Bat, and you're like, okay, is, series is over? What, 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 what is going on? And then it's like, you thought you knew what was going on, and then you don't, and then it continues. And um, and then we that gives us up to now. And, and so are, are we at the point now where we're kind of switching back from these episodic episodes back to sort of that A plot about Shonen Bat? Or is this just going to keep changing yet again i don't know no i think we're i think we will be satisfied with the ending i don't think it leaves anything hanging and i don't think that it uh what do you call it i i think we are coming back to the main core plot uh but yeah there was like a chunk in there like four episodes where you're like man this has nothing to do with what we were talking about and like it does just not you know it, it does thematically right right usually when a show has like storyline episodes and then monster of the week episodes usually it goes back and forth between those but this was like five story in a row then four monster of the week and then we like ended out yeah i think you know where where you would have just watched here episode 11 you find out that's ikari's wife and and then Manawa there comes in, who's who's very rarely named, by the way. You're like, I forget how many episodes you are into this before you get a name for the the younger <laughs> of the detectives, which I guess could be its own thing. I feel like identity is a pretty core part of what's going on in this. Yeah. And he suddenly comes back in, crazy as he may look, and you're like, okay, <laughs> wait, we've brought some of our main players back together, or maybe we're getting back to things. Yeah. So I still don't know where the story's going, but I trust Satoshi Kon, like... His four other movies, I was just as confused in those, <laughs> but everything was purposeful and contributed to a larger story, so I'm optimistic. Mm. To me, the opening credits of this make a real big impact. Like, it's the first 90 seconds of the whole thing, and it's what sold me on watching it in the first place. And I was talking before we came on the air here that my little communities, we're about to, to rewatch this ourselves in our little weekly kind of Discord rewatches. And one of my, my two selling points were basically Satoshi Kon, and watch this opening credits. 
<laughs> and he was like, I have to know what kind of story makes sense for these credits. But you meet almost all of the characters in those in those first few episodes. So then it's like in the middle, you spend all this time with characters that these, these guys aren't in the credits. <laughs> How important can these guys possibly be? But then there's the one you haven't met and you haven't met and you haven't met. And then finally, in episode 11, you have. The opening theme is called, well, the translation is Dream Island Obsessional. So I just read the lyrics for the first time, and they're pretty doom and gloomy. Yeah. We usually skip the uh, credits for uh, our viewing, but I watched it again today, and gosh, there's so much dark imagery, very apocalyptic. And that fabulous juxtaposition, right? Like, it's all this terrifying imagery, but these people maniacally laughing yes. in front of it. And a, and a kind of a soaring kind of audio that goes mm -hmm. with it. And I think that's why it made it like a good pitch is like, look at all these people laughing and, and ha 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 and doing all the same kind of, but very robotic, almost unsettling kind of laughter. Yeah. And in each one of their little settings, something is quite amiss. <laughs> something mm -hmm. does not compute. And then yes, you read the, the lyrics. I'm, I'm watching the Crunchyroll's version of this, which uh, translates lyrics for certain, oh, some of the opening, nice. some of the episodes it does. Some, it gives you the, um, a spelled out version of mm -hmm. the Japanese sounds, the, um, and then some, some, it just leaves blank, which I think is nice. Cause then you get, you kind of get every version of it. Mm. But yeah. Some of those are not words. They're just singing. They're just, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. vocalizations. Uh, but I agree. The words, the words are also very dark, but they, they also create a, uh, contrast with the kind of audio that's coming with them and how, yeah. how the, uh, the singer sounds. It doesn't sound, if you can't understand it, it doesn't sound like a depressing song by any means, but it has the words and the, uh, the audio and the words have a contrast similar to the discordant nature of the images, which to me just sets the scene for the whole thing so well. Yeah. Well, should we do the last time on and get into episode 12? Yeah, I'm so we're already off and running with this discussion. So let's do our opening stuff and we'll do a watch and then we'll get to talking. Last time on, I know what you drew last summer. We got an in-depth look at the life and death of your average anime production team. Saruta, a gopher for Melo Maromi's staff, caused accident after accident, delaying the production and earning him abuse from his co-workers. The accidents turned intentional as Saruta murdered everyone standing between him and validation. While driving the completed Maromi show to the TV station, Lil Slugger appeared as Saruta's last obstacle. This proved too much for our gopher, and he became the latest in a trail of bodies, taking a rest thanks to Maromi's influence. Meanwhile, Maniwa played costumed hero, keeping an eye on Misai Ikari, the medically suffering wife of our formerly senior detective. After a bleak visit to the doctor, Misai came home to find a visitor. Lil Slugger was poised to put Masai out of her misery, but not before hearing the story of her marriage. Masai had been stricken by chronic illness all her life, but had found transcendent support in the love of her husband. Having dealt with despair for so long, Masai was able to keep Lil Slugger at bay with her story, ultimately showing him that she was not afraid to die, but also not afraid to keep living. Maniwa appeared in time to get the scoop from Masai, while Ikari played policeman in a fantasy realm reminiscent of Japan's Kamishibai, paper theater. Is Maniwa the hero Tokyo deserves? How long can Ikari hide in his paper world? Moromi, Lil Slugger, Spice, Worms, is there a connection? Let's find out. All right. It's harder to do two episodes together like that, huh? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that was a, a rude awakening for me writing. Sorry, Ben, go ahead. <laughs> All right. If everyone's got it queued up, um, three, two, one, play. That's not so little, this slugger. Oh my gosh. I love it. He's like an ogre now. I swear that's the nurse from Tokyo Godfathers. No, totally. It to- 100% is. I love that she makes several appearances. Theta, have you seen Serial Experiments Lane? That also is, I saw back when I first watched this. So yeah. I don't have as much useful, up-to-date memory yeah. of it. There's a surprising number of correlations between that and this series. For sure. <laughs> I don't know how much I'm going to have to contribute to this discussion. <laughs> That's okay. You can just be wowed. <laughs> I did some research on Golden Bat. So, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to tell us that about that to start off the discussion? Well, um, here, let me pause this. I say, y'all have not been going through the prophetic visions at the end of these. Oh no, we didn't touch on them. Although they are very well done. Uh, a lot of shows don't put a lot of effort into their next time ons. Well, the one that's significant about this one is. In every other single one, the very last thing that happens is Shonen Bat swiping a bat mm-hmm. toward the audience. And in this one, it's Ikari. <gasps> Interesting. Okay, Blixa, so what, what's up with Golden Bat? Okay, so Golden Bat was a character in this Kamishi Shibai media, the paper theater thing, which Ikari is stuck in. So that's way back in 1931. Whoa. So that predates Superman and Batman. And sorry, can you explain this like paper theater thing a little more? So this was like a very early form of animation or? Well, it's like these slides. It's a device, a, a structure that looks like a TV with these like frames that you put in. And it's kind of like um, like the static backgrounds. And then you can have little characters on sticks. So it's almost like storyboarding, right? Mm-hmm. Not exactly shadow puppets, but like that type of media. What's interesting, like animation itself uh, uses that later, like whether it's like Bugs Bunny or Speed Racer or whatever, you have these backgrounds and then you have animators doing the other stuff on top of it. Yeah. And this is specifically like a street corner thing. And there's a narrator, like the person who's changing the slides and the characters around, they're also narrating the story. Mm. So, so you'd show up and see one of these devices in person. It's a little bit like a Nickelodeon or something well, it's like, like that. Street performances. Yeah, uh, they'd have yeah. it on a trolley, and one of the highlights was the person who would like make sound effects. Mm. But um, the idea was that these two people, Ichiro Suzuki and Takeo Nagamatsu, they came up with the Golden Bat name uh, because it was their favorite brand of cigarettes. Are you smoking yet? Uh, so I don't know what Ikari was smoking, but uh, isn't it like Hope cigarettes or yeah, something short, like that? Short okay. Hope. So not yeah. Golden Bat cigarettes. That probably would have been too on the nose. <laughs> so Golden Bat is like this character that has like a long history in Japan, but it's kind of like a phenomenon too. It's just this character that shows up again and again. So in like the paper theater, theater in 1931, and then there's a manga in 48, and it gets its first live action movie in 1950. And then in 66 and 67, there's another movie and then an anime series, 52 episodes worth. And none of this stuff exists anymore. You can't find it. <laughs> uh, 1972, Toho did a documentary comedy about Golden Bat. But again, that's lost media as well. That seemed weird to me because Toho is a pretty big <laughs> studio. 
Yeah, they don't lose anything they don't want to lose. Yeah, so the documentary was called The Golden Bat is Here. And then from there, like, it gets really loose and wacky. So at this point, Golden Bat is like a meme. (laughs) What's his name? The guy who did Astro Boy, Tezuka, Osamu Tezuka, like, Mm -hmm. put Golden Bat into one of his early mangas and anime. And then um, just over and over again, Golden Bat just keeps getting inserted into things as just a recognizable character. Golden Bat also took off really big in Korea. Uh, there was a ban on uh, Japanese media, except Golden Bat was the one exception. Whoa. Yes, so that's weird. Uh, so then 1979, Golden Bat gets its own Korean cartoon called Golden Bat Man. <laughs> like it's, it's this thing that keeps iterating off itself. And then later also in Korea, there's another live action movie and it's a knockoff of the knockoff. It's Super Beta Man, which is like the live action of Super Batman. Not Golden Bat himself, but the backup characters from Golden Bat show up in a video game called Troubleshooter. Like Golden Bat's arch nemesis is like one of the main bosses <laughs> in this video game. Whoa. But, you know, it's, I suppose, in public domain for a long time now. So mm. it's just something that could be freely used and thrown into things. And there's just, the list is too long of um, characters in various anime and manga that is like, a gold skeleton person with like godlike powers. So this is the the hero of a thousand faces kind of. Yeah. Uh, and then Golden aside from all that, like the weird phenomenon of Golden Bat. Golden Bat is just a weird character anyway, like technically a hero, but like very cruel. And then when Golden Bat dispatches like the villain of the week is just like ha 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 like so excited about <laughs> <laughs> so so we don't have any of this stuff anymore, but there's still sort of like accounts of what those stories were like and what, what he was like as a character. And Well, I mean, the, the anime archaeologist, I don't know, historian, uh, Kenny Lauderdale, he's got clips of a lot of this stuff, which is pretty impressive. And this is of that, like those early things that were like mainly lost to time. Like yeah. there are some clips floating out there. Yeah. Mm. Um, there is a bootlegger I know of that uh, does have a copy of one of the Golden Bat movies. Um, I think it's like the Sonny Chiba one. It's on my short list. Okay, cool. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That was very interesting. So you have this character archetype we don't have records of, but you have almost rumors of and, and gets iterated upon yeah. and keeps showing up. There's so much like yes. focus on mass media in this anime, you know, like the, the radio and the television and people on their phones and this, this, uh, the way this kind of cultural diffusion, you Absolutely. know, it's like, you know, even this bootleg that I mm-hmm. potentially could get, like, I can't verify that right now. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause it could be anything. It could be any, like, it could be like a luchador <laughs> show or something just rebranded. And it, I thought too, it's sort of interesting relevant to this episode that it's like this thing that seems like it was one of the biggest phenomena in like pop culture and then all of a sudden it just like disappears and it's wow. gone from everywhere, which is sort of like what we see, right, happen to, to Maromi at the end of this episode. Yeah, and that's kind of the Maromi side of it. But then the little slugger side of it, like Theta was kind of uh, saying or alluding to, like the influence is much bigger than the fame. Like, you know, every Japanese person has probably seen Golden Bat or one of his villains in 
a show or something, but they yeah. might not know where it comes from. Hmm. I couldn't believe the Toho thing. Like, do you know mm-hmm. how many stupid Toho movies there are <laughs> that like I have on Blu-ray? <laughs> Sorry, what is Toho? Toho is a studio in Japan. They did Godzilla. Okay. And- gotcha. it's, it does seem like a, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but there's definitely like a, a meta commentary of on the ephemeral nature of media that you have all these early examples of this just straight up gone. We know they existed, but we can't put your finger on them. Yeah. They don't literally exist anymore, but they do exist in the minds of people who remember them or knew something about them or have studied about them, but they don't physically exist. Seems relevant. Yeah, and in this episode, we see Sukiko's old sketchbook, and we see this one tiny little drawing that looks suspiciously yeah. like Lil Slug. And, and just a yeah. just a shadowy stick figure not well defined but ominous looking i'm sure you, you guys talked about those way back when you did episode two one i think it's the second one well maybe the first one where you i think actually the first one where it starts with her police sketch and it's just really a silhouette and then as people are t- talking about it and making rumors oh i think of the kid was like this and he was wearing golden shoes and 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 smiles the, the picture gets filled in it starts stops mm-hmm. being a silhouette and starts yes. taking on these little extra attributes it didn't happen in this episode but i think it was the previous episode where people started making rumors oh he's not so little anymore you know he's they sure he's he's become monstrous he's become yeah. huge whatever and well that's that's what we end up getting this monstrous thing than in just the yeah. grade school assailant yeah so so this episode starts with a bang right where we see I guess we saw the silhouette of it huge before, but now we see it with this sort of like ape-like mm-hmm. face and big fangs and canines. Um, and Manawa is fighting him. And it's another one of these sort of genre shifts where now we're sort of in a action fighting anime. But, you know, Blix, I think you were like kind of commenting like, like, is this supposed to really be happening? Like, are these buildings getting knocked down? And like, like kind of what's... What's going on? So what what is going on at the beginning of this episode? Oh my god! Why are you asking me that? Like, <laughs> I don't know I mean, what's asking the group. Yeah, I don't know what's fantasy <laughs> or reality anymore. And maybe that's the point. I, I think it. I think it must be the point. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, but when we go to um, his wife's, uh, oh man, I forget her name. Uh, Masai Ikari. Masai, thank you. We had just her last name in this one, Tomomi or something. So now I'm all thrown off. Uh, to Masai's to the house, and you can see. Some of the damage from the previous episode is there, but not all of it. So it's like some of these things from from episode 11 were were, uh, shown in bats there in the in the room and and must have happened, but not all of it. It didn't restore itself, nor did it fall down. And she's in the little, you know, pasture with the rainbow behind her. Right. Those things clearly didn't happen, but some things must have for this to uh, occur. So, my gosh. I think I think all the way back in the very first episode, when you first have Moromi come to life and talk to Tsukiko, we're just supposed to question: Is what we're seeing what's really happening or not? Mm-hmm. But in a way that we don't throw everything out and say, "Well, obviously none of this is happening." Some of these things are clearly happening, but if we can't tell where the line is between the two, then how do we expect the characters to understand? Absolutely, because we have a better perspective. We have an eagle eye thing. They're like in the thick of it. I mean, theoretically. Okay, so there's like peripheral evidence of golden bat in the real world, but we often get a lens of like an unreal world or something. Mm -hmm. Like it is a lot like the research, like the Toho documentary that's missing. There's a newspaper ad 
talking about it coming to theaters, but no one knows about the actual documentary. Hmm. The manga, there's like um, ad in other shonen anthologies, but no actual physical copies of the manga. The anime, I'm sure there's got to be clips somewhere, but in terms of Kenny Lauderdale's research, it was only clips from an ad break of a different anime attesting to the existence of this other anime. Well, somebody out there has got to know something. So what we kind of have in the story then is like all the all the rumors about Shonen Bat, the people making these rumors don't have firsthand knowledge of Shonen Bat, right? They're making up things. They've heard this and they embellish upon it. You know, you have that whole standalone episode with the like the, the gossiping women telling stories yes. that get more and more ridiculous. And, um, and whether they are accepted by the group or not is part of the d- dynamic there. And so the things that get accepted, even though they're embellishments and not from firsthand accounts, become kind of the, the social canon of his rumors. And we can see, based on how he looks now, that that hasn't had an effect. It was not, be, it was not discarded. To the degree that Shonen Bat is a real thing, which is still kind of hard to tell, He's changed. You know, the opening bit, the little voiceover at the beginning of this episode, because he's gone way down the like conspiracy theorist, <laughs> crazy yeah, guy yeah, thing. Yeah, he, he's radar man. Yeah, now. Yes. he's definitely like <laughs> the hero we need, but maybe not the one we deserve. Um, <laughs> the end of that bit is must not talk about him, or my translation says must not talk about him, must not think about him. Rumors help him grow. Imagination. <gasps> nurtures him amazing so as if if you stop talking about him he would vanish is almost the the implication here and it was brought up a second i think uh, ben i think you brought up the very end where all the maromis are gone all of a sudden and and what that means but we don't see what that means except that we get i think three different little slices of scenes with people we knew from the very beginning of this you have the, the husband, the professor that Harumi marries, sitting on the bed and suddenly appears behind him, Maria. Not Harumi, but, mm. but Maria. Yes. We have Ichi going to his footlocker, and there is a little uh, palm tree in there, which seems to indicate he's back to being bullied again. Um, mm-hmm. And then we check in on uh, Kawazu, the, the journalist from the very beginning, who's on the phone finding out that our old man has died. Is this, this is my fault? You know, worried about what that's going to mean that this person he hit has now died. Yes. And so at the same time, Maromi is disappearing. All of these people who were victims of Shonen Bat, but not lethal victims, who had kind of their temporary problems put on hold seemingly, they're back again. Yeah. Maria's back. The bullying's back. The worry over what happened from hitting the old man is back. At the same time, Maromi is gone. And, you know, those things being side by side, it's hard not to be okay. There's, there's correlation here, <laughs> if mm. if not causality. Yeah. Oh, totally. So, so I had a, a thought watching this episode that you know I think I think sort of lines up with what we see there, which is you know we have Maromi cut the phone line right when is that when Mana was telling her like he knows the truth of her secrets right yeah um and we had seen this in an earlier episode where i think you know they had arrested the kid as as the golden bat a uh, little slugger or shonen bat little slugger and uh you know Maromi hit power on the tv and just turned it off mm-hmm. so so I, i'm starting to get the picture that Maromi maybe sort of 
represents like denial or escapism and and that was sort of mentioned in the last episode too right it's like oh this cartoon it's this temporary escape or whatever um and you know there's a question maybe golden bat is the same thing as that but it you know so i guess Maromi disappears from the world and then all of a sudden these people are confronting these problems that they've put off or like seeing this reality maybe that was in front of them like for example I hadn't thought about it but you know like the husband in the Maria story in some ways he's the one who's like in denial right like she's done all this like weird stuff in front of him that he's just sort of like kept ignoring <laughs> yes so anyway, what, what what do you guys think about that as like Marumi is like denial or, or like the power of self-deception or something like that? I think it's in this episode, maybe the previous one. Um, scanning my notes real quick sure. uh, to make sure. While you're scanning, I think I think you're spot on, Ben. Uh, Maromi tells us to take a rest, which oftentimes, if you're plagued by a bunch of problems, it can be good, psychologically at least, to step away from them for a little while. But Maromi seems to be like, no, just focus on Maromi. Like, Sukiko's only outlet in her life is Maromi, which is that thing taken to an unhealthy level. Like denial, right? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, That's okay, I found it. It was the previous episode. Episode 11, there's a little interview with Tsukiko about the Mellow Maromi animation. They're asking her kind of her thoughts mm -hmm. on it. And her hopes is, a bit, she says basically she hopes that it will help spread peacefulness to others. That, that his mm. peaceful, calming thing will spread to everyone else. That's kind of what we see. Everyone's got the Maromi merchandise and they're watching, they're tuning in to watch the Maromi anime and... Uh, that idea of it being peaceful, that being somewhat pacifying, I think does line up with that idea of this is a an avoidance or a coping mechanism of a, a way of bringing on peace by the absence of conflict rather than, I don't know, whatever else you would do to deal with problems. A kind of, uh, mm -hmm. I, mean, I think that's like the, the, the earlier, earlier in this series before Shonen Bad is just straight capping people. Um, is the people who are hit or victim have this sense of relief, of sense of their burdens being lifted. And I, I, I found that very um, relatable back in the day, and less so now, but I think when I was younger, the idea that I wish something would happen to me. And not in like a I want to give up kind of way, not like not as it leans into like the suicidal possibilities of that earlier later in the series. But like, I wish I could be in a car accident or something, something that would disrupt the flow of my life right now. The building pressure, yeah. the building stress, my not seeing any way out, that feeling of being cornered. I just wish something would happen that would be not my fault. You know, I could give up on these things I don't feel like I can do or this situation I don't think I can escape from. And it wouldn't be me losing or giving up or surrendering. It would be an external cause. It's not my fault. I was attacked by the guy with the bat. I was I yes. was in a car wreck. I was in a whatever. And I think I think a lot of people can probably relate to that at some point in their life. That sometimes you want an out, but you can't admit that to yourself, or you are afraid of what happens if you admit that to other people. Yes. And so that that seems to be what Shonen Bat represents to me, at least earlier on in the series. And now we get to this point. And there is the direct correlation between Maromi and Shonen Bat drawn. And suddenly you're like, all right, well, what about the other side of that? Not something traumatic happening to you, 
but this this cute, peaceful mascot character dog, this opiate of the masses <laughs> in anime form we have here, are these completely different concepts? I don't know. I feel like that's the the question. At least I, I came away from this development of, of drawing a direct parallel between them. Yeah. I think there is something uh, said to, it's something that uh, Ikari's wife is relating about Ikari, something he said to her. And this was again in the previous mm-hmm. episode. So sorry, I keep going back to the episode we're not even talking about, but that's relevant. This is good. <laughs> Where basically she had apologized for that he has to live a certain life, that his life would be hard, easier if she was not around. Uh, kind of giving mm-hmm. up, and and he she relates that what he said to her was to basically he looks at her sharply, says never say anything like that again. You're just trying to escape. Don't run from reality. A makeshift salvation is nothing but deception. No matter how hard, don't run away. We'll overcome it together. He's speaking to his wife, but that seems he might as well be speaking to all these characters who have been the victim yeah. of shown in bed or or to or us to, yeah. or, to, yeah, or to the audience. Yeah. Or or himself. Or right? himself now, mm-hmm. yeah. The irony is oh, that like man. if only he could tell himself that right now as he stays lost in the paper world. Yeah. And Mrs. Ikari it, it represents, I think, kind of an antithesis to Shonen Bat and Maromi. Because like one, she's the one character that stands Shonen Bat down, mm-hmm. does not turn away from him, and doesn't like fight him or anything like Maniwa is doing, just like confronts him with her own story and how she feels and establishes some sort of agency. She realizes for some reason, like, look, if I don't let myself get cornered, you can't do anything to me. And he wants to, he keeps swinging and and missing and and getting frustrated. Yeah, and like you said, there is this idea of, you know, I, I too have wanted this in my life. Like, what if something could happen and put a pause on my life and it wouldn't be my fault, right? Well, she represents kind of the opposite of that. Maybe Mm. hers goes to an unhealthy place too, but she's apologizing to Ikari, her husband, for things that are not her fault remotely. It's just the situation of her life. Her, she didn't like play in, you know, toxic waste when she was a kid. It's not her fault that she has these like uh, uh, chronic diseases or, or ailments. And yet she continually apologizes to him. She takes agency for something that maybe she has no uh, place to really take agency for that. She's being too hard on herself. And yet she takes agency as like an antithesis to all of the victims of Shonen Bat who want the exact opposite. They want someone else to take away their problems, if only for a little while. I like that. So uh, we're, we're already at 8.10. Um, so I don't know if we have time to walk through the whole episode, but there are two parts at least that I sort of want to discuss, which is one, the figurine section, just because it's sort of like insane. And I don't know <laughs> <laughs> if you guys have any thoughts about like the choice of your what's going on there and why that's in this episode, um, if it kind of relates to the themes. And then... Um, some someone was talking about what happened when uh, Maniwa went and talked to Sukiko's father, and like the sword is the bad and that stuff. So I think that might be good to explain because I think that might go over the head of some people watching this, and yeah. and some of the people in this podcast. I mean, that's, that's how I feel about it. Uh, the the visit with her father, I think, is easier to deal with uh, between those two. You want to deal with that one? I can deal with the other one. Um, Please, because there's a. You have him saying that essentially he, he goes along with it. He knows something about her story doesn't line up, but he felt like you know she, she had no mother. He felt like he'd been too strict with her, 
Um, and he was worried that part of the reason she was the way she was was because of his strict upbringing. And so when something happens um, with the dog and she has this story, he believes her. He says he carries the bat around like he's and pretends he's going to look for her attacker. That he that, that yes. was like the thing he was doing for her, what he wanted to do for her. Somehow that obviously relates to Shonen Bat, obviously. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you, you can't miss that connection. Uh, but yeah. something about her father's attempt to to do this, you can see he, he's not so sure he did the right thing. Hmm. He may have a little bit of regret about that. He he has the message he passes, tries to pass to his daughter through Maniwa, you know, the, the thing that Murumi cuts off the, the phone call with, um, yes. to not hear that, you know, you don't have to suffer alone anymore, whatever it is, however it's translated for you, that he knew all along that the, her story had problems, that there was probably didn't happen, but he just, he... He helped her with her escapism. He thought it was the thing, the right thing to do. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it sounds like he feels like the same now. He doesn't seem, he's not so sure he made the right choice way back when, 10 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. Which I guess makes her 22 if we're <laughs> doing the math on that. Yeah, she's very young. Yeah. yeah. And as far as the other scene goes with the otaku, so I, I took the, the high fantasy of Maniwa talking to these dolls I thought that was just a kind of a nod towards, look, if you're going to lean into your fantasy or your psychosis or whatever, you may find esoteric knowledge. Like we could say, oh, the dolls are really talking to him. Or he could think back to like how they had been tackling the case thus far. And one of the first things they did was check out that otaku because he lives on the same, I think in the same building as Sukiko. And uh, from, you know, from the fantasy perspective, he talks to these dolls and he they connect him with this thing. But maybe he just needed access to a computer and that otaku actually (laughs) had a pretty decent setup because, you know, he he's not quite an invalid, but he he spends his life in his apartment. And then the the otaku himself, he's gone beyond making regular models right putting them together he started to sculpt real people yeah he's he's part of the story of lil slugger right Mm -hmm. and so he's sculpting like the the victims and he finally sculpts himself which one may be like oh you're the next victim something like that but also you know he lives his life around all of these dolls and he projects his fantasies his wants he projects them onto these you know static characters these dolls even when we saw him with uh, maria he's like having sex with maria but he's completely focused on these dolls yeah. once he you know has his orgasm and climbs off the top of her he doesn't even notice she's in the room anymore he just talks to these dolls and ultimately th- i think that says more about not his outward looking but more about his inward looking because if you surround yourself with dolls, not real people, then you're you're really worshiping yourself. Because all of those dolls are just expressions of things you like, things you like about yourself or don't like about yourself or things you like about the world. And so when he sculpts himself as the the last uh, model, he maybe he finally understands or maybe it's just a nod to us, the audience, that all of this anime worship, all of this doll worship is really just worshiping himself. And that is that happens in that people losing their denial sequence, right? That's right. When Marumi disappears, he has this like realization about himself, right? And his realization, he stumbles outside in response. Hmm. Oh, that's so good. It's definitely like a coming from fantasy. And you're right. The introduction to that guy is 
wow, he is completely ignoring the the woman in the room there and and focuses right on the dolls like this is a level of living a fantasy life beyond what most people probably are familiar with or maybe even comfortable with um to yes sculpting himself sculpting the victims moving from fantasy to reality all the way up to himself and then he's outside and you're right it's in the sequence of all those people having lost their coping mechanism seemingly reality crashing you know kicking in the door yeah and I think there's one short shot before you see the doll that he's made, that he's sculpted of, him, of himself. I think you see like all the other dolls, he's broken them apart. Yeah. Like they're all in pieces. Now. They've all been like cast aside. Like they're not being treasured and put on the shelf and, and, and fussed over. You know, his apartment's yeah. full of these shelves of dolls, not, yeah. he's living in this tiny little space that's not doll. And then, you know, the irony that the dolls accuse him of being a doll. You know, don't talk he to him. Talk to us. He's just a doll. Uh, are are any more uh, uh, stuff on this episode? Do we feel confident moving to the next one? Were we supposed to recognize the bellhop in the elevator? Oh, I think so. I think it's just the old man. Okay. The one that just died in this. But he looks very strange because he's on a very large person's body. Yeah, yeah okay. and he's a, a bellhop. What floor? It's his voice for sure. But we also know he died. Yeah. Does remind me of the Twin Peaks giant. I will tell you three things. Oh yes! Oh my God! I love that actor. And no one else is. Um, no one else is in the elevator with her, mm-hmm. right? Even though we That's just saw weird. a bunch of doctors and nurses rushing her in there, suddenly we have a, a white light fills the space, and it's a guy we know is dead, and no one else is in the little conversation with her. And he just passed away in the same hospital, presumably, she's at. Yeah. So his soul is not very far from his body, if we want to believe in things like that. (laughs) You you had had precedent for that back in the suicide episode, where the guy who jumps in front of the train, suddenly one of them sees him. And Mm -hmm. it's, wow, why is this happening? It's not until the end of the episode you realize, well, they've been dead the whole, you know, (laughs) since they locked themselves in the building, they've actually been dead the whole time. So they would see people other people who are recently deceased. Brilliant. And then I had one, uh, my last thing for this episode is that, uh, what's her name? Sukiko and her manager have a meeting with an executive from another company. And she's like, okay, when are you going to show me your next sketch? And the irony is that she already has. Little Slugger is the next character that takes the world by storm. Yeah. You know, it's that same monkey paw thing. It's not at all how she intended. Yeah, we should we should have clued in back in episode one that it was a character creator who was describing the guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe this time let's watch the the theme. Sure. Um, okay. We watched it for episode one and bring it full circle. Yeah, Tsutsumu Hirasawa. Composer on every Satoshi Kon work. All right. Three, two, one, play. You know, even this first image is Tsuhiko on top of a building holding her shoes, which is a <gasps> yes. oh. shorthand for someone about to jump. Right, right. Gosh, it's so bombastic. So there's like a tsunami, and then people are submerged. World upside down. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hiroshima. All the, uh, you know, the trash. It never occurred to me, but maybe there's a reading that Ichi and Ushi, the two kids, maybe there's a reading that they're kind of the same person. That, like, he believes he is this, you know, star athlete and, like, uh, uh, the head of his class, but really he is someone who's made fun of a lot. 
That'd be interesting. I don't know how I'm going to feel if it turns out that all these people are dead <laughs> and we're just watching like a big Jacob's Ladder sort of series. It's just the sixth set fun crack. This was just the last fleeting dying thought in that old man's head. Mm-hmm. Dying dream trope. Don't mess with me, Ben. <laughs> Back in the paper world. Yeah. The moon, I don't know if you guys have talked about the moon in this series. No. But like it constantly yeah, changes yeah, yeah. what phase it's in in a way that doesn't make sense. Oh. Tsukiko's name is probably moon related. Yeah, it is. Tsuki's moon. You can really see the paper paper part of this one. I wonder if this is what inspired um, Parappa Rappa. Yeah, I guess that tradition does like survive into the modern age. There's Paper Mario. There's like a, a Paper Zelda, a game that's very much like that. Flat Stanley. Oh my God, is there a tsunami oh, coming? Flat Stanley. What the f- what? <laughs> a kind of tsunami. What is happening? It's going cosmic, Blixa, like they always do. Oh my gosh. It came out of the TV. Not not to be overestimated that. I mean, uh, underestimated the symbolism there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and as for it coming out of the TV, that, like, I think Satoshi Kon likes the theme of these things are happening because you're watching them and you might be a bad person for enjoying them. Let's go. It's certainly not a flattering otaku surrogate. <laughs> yes. Just you, Tsukiko. You and no one else. A, a cat this time. No, no, no dogs. No more dogs. <laughs> yeah. No more dogs. Which I think this is a, a, a striking indictment of Hello Kitty. <laughs> it's so good. It's such a good ending. A little bit of aftermath and then some just incredibly evocative images that tell you you know uh uh what happened to people in the epilogue and then there the prophetic vision that gets one more gets one more spin at the end of these credits there he is now all this little suddenly doubling of all these uh characters seems relevant wow 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 that that's a major theme in here is Two characters being two halves of the same person and also like characters taking on the aspects of another like Maniwa at the end there, right? He becomes the old man for the next revolution. Okay. I I understand the main story. The main plot. Very good, right? Yes. Why was uh, Sukiko's imagination? Okay. They, they addressed that in the last episode, right? other people's imaginations like fed it. So like, I guess it began with her story and then her father going along fed this idea, the imagination. And then once it becomes like, she becomes an animator and it goes spread to a wider audience. Okay. I think I've got it. Yeah. There's this uh, Grant Morrison quote. I like a lot. Uh, He's talking about, I think it's in his book, super gods. He's talking about Superman and the atomic bomb. And he says, the atomic bomb was an idea once. And then people made it real, right? But before it was ever real, it was just a theory. It was just a, and people made it real. And Superman, I think, is a better idea. You know, and that and that's more of like wishful thinking of, you know, a hero to rise up and save us maybe, or maybe us to become our best selves. Uh, but there's a, I think there's a similar through line here, especially in the um, the juxtaposition of what's his name, uh, uh, Ikari. He says about the city, you know, when, when we come out of it, we're like, oh, did all of this stuff happen for real? Is the dark cloud an allegory or is it physically hurting people? And he says, 
when he surveys the real destruction, he says, oh, it's just like after the war. Yeah. It's just like after the bomb. And he is juxtaposed in the intro sequence with an atomic blast behind him. So very much so, you know, the 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 atom bomb was an idea. Well, so was Maromi. Something like a pop icon could have these massive real world effects, but it all comes from one person's imagination. And kind of the the danger of ideas in a sense. Like you're talking about yes. nuclear bomb is obviously not a not a force for construction uh, mm-hmm. uh, com- compared to like Superman, for example. But you you have like <laughs> Maromi, who is this ostensibly harmless, positive kind of you know. In the little anime we see of him, he's he's you know making excuses for the kid who fails in baseball, which I guess is a different you know. It seems like a harmless idea, but ultimately is not. But you have Maromi, the cute side, and then Shonen Bat, and they come from the same origin. Uh, they are both coping mechanisms. Yes. Yeah, I think, I don't know if you've talked about this in previous episodes, but there's the concept of maladaptive daydreaming, that people will dream of a better world or put themselves in stories or imagine uh, circumstances would have gone differently or just like replaying an argument in your head where you're going to get the better of the other person. Um, Yes. This this concept that you can retreat into your imagination is a kind of bit of a solve for your own wounds or for stress or just something you enjoy but it's 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 unhealthy done to a certain degree that you are retreating yeah. and, and i feel like the you know ikari's paper world is pretty much that exactly and what we get in there with you know tsukiko joining him and becoming his daughter the daughter he'd never had because it turns out she couldn't come to term she she it sounds like it seemed like she got pregnant she miscarried that seemed that was my yes. impression yeah. of what happened there but he always kind of longed for the daughter. He's dreaming of a world in which that could happen. And then she takes on and starts talking about him as her father. She she leans into the idea of a father who would take her to the cultural festival and she can get all dre- dressed up. And they're both dreaming of a world that, that wasn't and, and retreating from the one that is. So their imagination maybe can be positive or, or can do good things or capture the imagination. The imagination capturing the imagination. I'm not sure that. Mm-hmm. Makes much sense. Which I think hopefully you know what I mean. Um, sure. But there's, it's not a net, or it's not a universal positive. It may not even be a net positive. Mm-hmm. But that that idea that this is a a phenomenon that is more common with technology being the way it is now is something I think is pretty common in Satoshi Kon's works. There's a lot of. I, I would love to see what he would think of present day you know, the final boss stages of social media and things like that. I mean, I can't imagine the kind of works we would get if he had the foresight to talk about these things to the degree he did back at the end of the 90s into the into the early knots. I mean, Web 2.0 is only just happening at this time. We're, we're nowhere yeah. near where it will eventually become. Um, but the same kind of worry about social contagion and how rumor and imagination can so much more rapidly self-catalyze into something that uh, grows into monsters, that grows way out of control of the original person's simple idea or simple thought, something that would not have grown to the size or scale if you go back you half a century or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to like ignore how much technology and the time in which this is produced matters to the story. Well, so, so one thing, I think going into this episode, I was sort of in the, oh, Maromi is just the exact same thing as a little slugger. They're both these kind of creations of imagination. They're both lies. 
or something. I don't know. But but then I feel like it complicated a little bit in this episode where when Marumi disappears, then like little slugger like really gets out of control. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like there was something about Marumi being there that was holding back little slugger. And when Marumi is gone, you know, this black ooze just like destroys all of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I guess like, what what do we make of that? Was Marumi doing something valuable? Was it, were the characters who thought that Marumi was, you know, just this distraction wrong or like, you know, there, there is some value in, in denial and these like psychological defense mechanisms we use. Um, what, what's going on there? I think it's interesting that the two of them form up together at the end. Like, however, however you want to reconcile that idea, the final boss here is a combination of Moromi and the Black Ooze. Yeah. But, but, but Moromi is like, I'm sorry, like, save yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, it's like, I don't know. I couldn't tell if they were like battling each other or, yeah, or if it is like combined ooze or what. I, I, I guess it would depend on what you, if you, I don't think this is supposed to be allegory. Like they have exactly a one-to-one mapping of sure. what they stand in for. Um, but if you think of Moromi as a, let's say, happy coping mechanism mm-hmm. and Shonen Bat as more of a conflict, tragedy, interruption, uh, disruption coping mechanism, let's say that, then the idea that they can work against each other or balance each other is can be true along with them both still being escapes from reality. Mm-hmm. Whether I think the story is indicting one over the other or throw wholly throwing them out i don't think so i think at the end where one you have a new mascot the cat you're suddenly seeing everywhere is like a here we go again (laughs) the final you know the final prophetic vision there that is delivered by maniwa not the old man Mm -hmm. is talking about you know the 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 story that seems to have uh, the story that seems to have ended went round and round and back to its beginning. It's like he does the whole formula. He's the one completing the equation now. And he gets to the final equal sign. And there's no answer. Mm-hmm. Or at least not one that can easily be written down. And I feel like the, the story is therefore not saying that this kind of coping mechanism is right and this one's wrong. Or maybe even that coping mechanisms as a whole are right or wrong. That there is a because especially if we see the characters seem to be in a better place after the end of two years than they were, mm-hmm. then maybe they're temporarily leaning on Shonen Bat or Maromi or whatever, and then eventually facing things uh, did eventually lead them to a better place. You know, Tsukiko there in the end, she's cut her hair. That's kind of a classic threshold moment for characters, mm-hmm. the demonstration of uh, going through a major change. So we have to assume she's doing better than she was. Yeah, and her outfit is like uh, a more standard office workers. Uh, I've seen a lot of women in anime wear those in an office position. Yeah, yeah. I was actually going to comment on that. The way that um, she looked, the animator, it reminded me of a character from like Azumanga Daio. It mm. coded her as very young. Yeah, she had, she had the, the short pigtails back when she was a, yeah. a kid. Yeah. But the, uh, there's one uh, uh, little specific point that I don't think came up that speaks to your uh, uh, your question, Ben. Moromi disappears when Sukiko enters the fantasy world with uh, Ikari. 
And in this episode specifically, Sukiko says, or Moromi says, I'll protect Sukiko and only Sukiko. So mm. like somehow, you know, again, like like Theta said, it's not exactly allegory. There isn't like a one-to-one thing. But when she enters, when she takes Moromi with her into the fantasy world, it cuts off reality from her imagination. It like takes Moromi away from them. And as far as, uh, yes, Moromi, like, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like, tries to hold back Lil Slugger or the Cloud of Darkness. But when they merge, it's almost like Moromi's trying to hold itself back, right? It It is mm. the realization that these two forces are, uh, ha- you know, different sides of the same coin. They're both coping mechanisms from Tsukiko. Yeah. You know, so they definitely are coping mechanisms, I think. One of the other themes throughout this has been sort of, you know, the virality and and kind of like this story that's spreading. And I guess I I wondered if there was kind of like this point of like, you know, like, yeah, both of these things are just stories. They're just lies. But sort of like if you lose the positive lies, then the, you know, just kind of like the fear and whatever that just like takes over and that will destroy society. So you do need to tell these like entertaining stories that, yeah, they're just stories. They're not true, but they like protect us from just like falling apart or something like that. Mm, I I think those would be like the two positions of like uh, little slugger and Maromi, like what really, struck me sorry for the pun was there was a a monologue that ikari had and it was one that we heard parts of in one of the early episodes when ikari was at the tavern or restaurant talking to maniwa it wasn't clear what the issue was at the time but you know ikari was saying we had to accept reality like we had to face our circumstances and accept it and that felt like the resolution that saved the day yeah so sukiko was there with ikari at the climax and then that came out again and i guess that's what sukiko needed she needed to face reality and accept it mm-hmm. and then that's when little slugger said goodbye yeah she she apologizes she takes she she's she's apologizing to Moromi, the actual physical dog which means mm. she's taking responsibility it's no longer it's yes. his fault or someone else's fault she's like i'm sorry i'm so sorry Yes, I, yeah. I, mean, I agree. Like, that is the key thing. And, and, and Ikari, the reason it makes sense to have Ikari with her at the end is that idea of accepting reality, I think. Like, the fact that his wife does die, that she doesn't go for the, for the surgery and everything's okay and, and mm. you know, that's that's it. Um, happy ending from the grasping victory from the jaws of defeat. No, that she comes to try to say goodbye to him in his fantasy world, but she she doesn't live on Mm-hmm. I think that helps reinforce that accept reality thing. If he, if his whole struggle and her struggle was about accepting reality versus running from it, and the running from it would be the idea that she is of sound mind, which we have evidence that she's not, and that mm-hmm. she'll perfectly be fine, that she'll take surgery, he'll work hard, he'll pay for it, and then everything will be back to their youth when things were at their height, you know, the zenith of their relationship and their happiness. If they had gotten back to that, that kind of undercuts this face reality lesson this face reality notion because they didn't have to and they still won facing reality they get reality but the way they deal with that reality is suddenly different it becomes a healthy thing and Sukiko can I guess essentially see his example she calls him father in the paper world and he goes 
I'm not your father. Mm-hmm. He destroys the illusion both of them are sharing for a moment there. And I feel like that inspires her to be able to do the same later. At least that's my interpretation of why the two of them are together there. Why it's those two characters out of our entire cast that are chosen for the end. Oh, I agree with you. I, I think there's a great deal of parallels and 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 this idea of surrogacy for both of them. Because like one, why is it Akari that is her father in the fantasy? Well, her father was strict and made her kind of afraid of him and afraid to be unruly or for bad things to happen. And then he softened, right? He gave, he got her the puppy. Uh, he went out to look for a little slugger for her to make her feel like, you know, he believed her no matter mm-hmm. what she was telling him. Um, and uh, similarly, Ikari at the beginning of the story is an antagonist to Sukiko. He's the detective who's going to put her away for lying, you know, for staging an assault or something like that, or expose her as a fraud. But, you know, because they recognize they they have some interactions with each other and then they recognize something in each other, a similar pain, a similar a longing for things to be different. They are able to temporarily play out that surrogate role for each other. And although Ikari shatters the illusion and tells her, no, I'm not your father. I think the time they spend in a fantasy together is productive for the two of them. You know, Mm -hmm. it's almost like uh, role-playing therapy where they're like, okay, well, let me be your father for a minute. And what would you have said to me as your father, you know, Or, Mm. or let me be your wife for a minute. And what would you have said to me as your wife? And sorry, I I just have to say this so that it doesn't uh, escape my brain. So I get it in here. Um, Ikari's wife, Misai, um, I'm sorry. This is so, it's a really beautiful moment. Um, It is. Take your time. She chooses, in a way she chooses to die because she's at the hospital, right? And we know she's in the real world. She's going up for the surgery. But when the old man asks her, what floor do you want to go to? She doesn't say, I want to go to the operating room. Obviously, I'm here for a surgery. She says, take me to my husband because supporting him is more important to her than her own life continuing because, you know, he's supported her this whole time. And it's like a debt she can never repay in her own mind, you know? They've supported each other. It really is a wonderfully equal relationship in some ways. But to her, this choice she makes, that's that's the way she repays it um, by seeing him one last time. Yeah. It is beautiful. Yeah. And and I, I do think it's somehow significant that Maniwa isn't, he's not effective at fighting this thing, yes. right? And uh, Ikari is, right? So our, our guy who kind of, went off the deep end a little bit like yes he found the truth but like i think he was like too far gone to do anything with it and kind of like ikari the cold rational one was the one that kind of got i mean i I guess ultimately came down to sukiko but right but like you're saying there's a reason that he's there at the end in sort of the that final final climax well Maniwa understood the narrative better than Ikari, but Ikari understood the solution. Yeah, it took both of them. Maniwa brought them to the point of understanding, but it took Ikari's detective instincts to know what to do for Sakiko. Sorry, Theta. No, so, uh, uh, same, similar. Like, I wonder if their ability to relate to each other 
is the answer to to Ben's question and the, and talk about the role playing and all that 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 maybe a little bit of fantasy or a little bit of imagining as they do is not all bad in the sense that the two of them were able to meet and understand each other and therefore oppose Shonen Bat because of going through because of not being complete outsiders to it to indulging in a little bit of escapism themselves and therefore understanding the people who are choosing that that the the fantasy world is not real but the ability um, or the path it provides for them to face reality is is real yeah. in a sense hmm. oh my gosh this reminds me so much of like trauma processing uh, so there's a modality yeah. that would suggest like the social history archaeology isn't so important as just understanding the narrative and like once you have that understanding whether it happened exactly how you recall or not doesn't matter because the emotional resolution is what matters but you have to understand the narrative even if it's not exactly accurate so we, we needed both detectives basically is kind of the yeah yeah and the uh even maromi and um uh little slugger struck me as things we you've talked to me about plixa in in or for from uh, uh trauma processing they both are like archetypes mm. like little slugger is this combative co uh, confrontational protector archetype and uh maromi is more like this emotional healing kind of understanding archetype which either one of those taken to an extreme is a maladaptive thing but together they they can uh uh i don't know bring us to better results than they can alone and that's the i think it's very specific that akari and sukiko they're able to help each other it's it's the fantasy and having someone else to experience it with you and bring you back to reality mm. that's like the key component because when you're just in your fantasy on your own, you lose your bearings on what's real, what's not real, what's helpful, what's not helpful. The otaku, he goes to a very dark place when he sculpts himself. And Tsukiko, she's been alone in this fantasy for 10 years. And she couldn't come to terms with that day, that trauma with the dog until she met Ikari and went through this process with him. So kind of like... Uh... In a different way, the way uh, Maniwa finds the, the Holy Warrior guidebook, and this is what puts him down the path of becoming a Holy Warrior himself, but he takes to that fantasy idea right away. Mm -hmm. And when they're interviewing um, Kozuka, I think is the guy, the the person who uh, later Fox is being his other name, it turns out, yeah. he he had the, like almost a good cop, bad cop, but not, unten not intentional where he starts reading the guidebook and he talks to him in the language he understands about ancient master and all these things and is able to get him to tell the story in a way he can understand, even though it's through kind of code that Ikari couldn't get. He couldn't extract that out of him. He was just the, you know, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts, ma'am. Confrontational. And, and the guy retreated into his fantasy away from that. And I think Later, we have a role reversal. Maniwa is the one who keeps being the confrontational one to Tsukiko, trying to throw the truth in her face, trying to make her face these things, what Ikari was earlier. And then it's Ikari who goes into a kind of fantasy world with her. And I think then she is willing maybe to listen to him. Mm -hmm. She hides behind him from the truth. She, she calls him father. She tugs on his sleeve. She does all these things that even though they're both living a fantasy, create a connection between them that Maniwa did not have. He did not have the ability to relate. Uh, it's just a, it's a, a reversal from what happened with the, you know, Kozuka, uh, Kozuka earlier in the 
in the series, mm-hmm. um, which I find kind of fascinating in a, there's not a single easy solution to this. One person doesn't have the magic bullet that's going to solve this. Truth does not set you free all by itself, as it turns out. The the human relation. She didn't have anybody this whole time to relate to. I mean, I agree that talking about t- she's had this 10 years building in her and no outlet for it, no one to admit to, somewhere down low, probably knowing this really happened and carrying the guilt of it. And and took all this time before she could process it, essentially. Mm-hmm. But she needed someone she felt like she could process it with, it seems. So, so is there blame on the father? Like, was it the wrong move for him to just go along with her story? You know, that was sort of the easiest thing at the time. And he thought he was helping her out. But like, actually, he should have been like, hey, like, if there's something you want to talk to me about, you know, like if something different actually happened, I don't know. <laughs> Is it like uh, overcorrecting? You know, like he'd been so strict, he decided to be too lenient. Yeah. And in the same way that Maromi and Shodan Bad are so different, yes. like, like a huge dichotomy between them. It's like you swung the pendulum too far by being too nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems it, to me that he has a lot of regret about how he handled it, at the very least. Yeah, and and, and we have... um. Uh, Ikari talk about that sort of generational pendulum stuff too, right? Like he's talking about, oh, he wanted, uh, he didn't want a son because he didn't want yeah. his son to hate him the way he hated his father. And <laughs> so I think that speaks to, yeah, maybe that the generations didn't know how to relate to one another. Mm. And so they, they couldn't talk this through and like deal with the, the emotions of that tragedy. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I feel like there's a very, a sense of isolation among characters, f- despite how interconnected they are. You could probably expand this to some of his other works, that the size of your potential audience or people you were talking to or the, the how far rumors or information can run, we seemingly are way more connected to each other and should have this bigger group of people that we're a part of. But it seems like that is isolating for our characters. Our characters do not seem to be part of healthy relationships of peers of i mean hardly anybody has a is there a single (laughs) at at all times represented as a healthy positive and um active relationship in the in this uh in this story there's difference between the kids kids and their parents there's distance between romantic partners and um, I think the most positive is probably you know Mr. and Mrs. Akari Um, mm -hmm. but even that it's not perfect and and the only reason it is as nice as it is is because they worked through their problems together yeah I think I I think I'd agree that like that's the closest thing and the fact that they're having trouble is important Mm -hmm. you know the fact that there is the temptation to summon Shonen Bat and remember he's able to draw just a just a little bit of blood he's able to scratch her Mm -hmm. so it's not like he never hits her never makes contact but she only gave in a little bit she only despaired for a minute there Mm. yeah and as as far as the um the father sukiko's father is concerned uh yeah i think he does the wrong thing by overcompensating but there's uh uh What's his name? Uh, Satoshi Kon seems to be very interested in the theme of people being overworked, like maybe under capitalism specifically, but like very much people being so, you know, Ikari, he's overworked. You know, he spends too much time at his detective job. And then when he loses it, he he works triple shifts at these security jobs, ostensibly to pay for his wife's uh, medical procedures. 
but it ends up keeping him away from her for like 12 hours a day, you know, like all this time he used to spend with her. Well, he can't face it anymore. And uh, Sukiko's father, there's a line about, I, you know, I didn't think you would bring me to this festival when they're in the fantasy world because you work so hard. You know, mm-hmm. you're always mm-hmm. working. And and that was part of her guilt when Marumi died, too, was like, he worked so hard to get this, like, dog for me. I just, like, can't disappoint him. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think there's this this theme of even when we want to do the right thing, sometimes circumstances keep us from doing it. He should have had the time to sit down and talk to her about what happened. But he's so exhausted in his life. All he can really do is pick up a bat and go walk around, you know, and that's not dealing with her. That's not dealing with the problem. It's it's just, you know, performative. It's theater that he thinks will make her feel better hmm. when they could have just gone to the park together. Yes, absolutely. OK. Yeah. yeah. And and may, maybe that's like, you know, Akari and his wife, too. Right. Like he's working really hard for her as opposed to actually spending time with her at the end of her life. Spending their last days together. Yeah. And and it sounds like work is being treated as a coping mechanism itself. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't get a fantastical representation in a character. But I think just those two examples, you see the the work is something Ikari is doing to not go home because Mm -hmm. you have multiple people say, why don't you just go home to your wife? Why, you Mm -hmm. know, why whatever? And he's he starts to say the, you know, I don't have a place anymore, which is true in the sense that he can no longer go back to the way things were. Mm -hmm. But it's not true. In a sense that there's literally no place. You know, she has a line, I want to say in uh, episode 11, something to the effect of that he had become home for her and she wanted to become home for him. Oh, gosh. And I'm paraphrasing that, but that is essentially what she was resolved to do. And him not going home, not feeling like he has a place is this, it's an indictment of him there at the end, I think. So, so we have kind of a lot of people making up excuses to get out of work or deadlines, but then people also using a work as an excuse to kind of not have to deal with the difficult things in their life outside of work. Yeah, it's it's much like Shonen Bet is this external thing. Oh, it's not my fault. I, I can't deal with it, but I, it's not my fault that I can't live up to it. It's work. I have to work. You know, I, I that's... That's my identity. Everyone expects me. I cannot go home from work and and see my wife in her dying days because it's work. It's exactly the kind of externalizing blame and externalizing, you know, solution to your problems and and hiding from it that I think Schoenbeck seems to represent. Mm -hmm. Um, Like we were talking earlier, like the idea of I can relate to the idea of having some kind of trauma or or conflict come into your life that interrupts it. That's not your fault. And work, Mm -hmm. I think, falls in that category. Um, which makes it a, a convenient place to run for a lot of people. All right. So Satoshi Kon has given us a tremendous gift. What's funny to me is there's this message about people obsessed with a narrative and they needed to face reality. So here we are. We're talking about a fictional story. <laughs> so my question would be, what uncomfortable truth do we need to face which would cost us a comfortable narrative? I'm not asking for confessions. I'm just saying, like, in honor of Satoshi Kon, I think it's something all the viewers should be thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one one thing I think is interesting that maybe is a little bit of an uncomfortable truth is uh, 
you know, I think we've watched a lot of anime that have sort of like atom bomb imagery and stuff yeah. like that. But this is one of the few things I can think of that had that sort of like tsunami destruction imagery. Yes. Um, and that, you know, like sort of the fear of nuclear war is something that I don't think is very present in many people's minds. But that is this sort of existential threat that looms over Tokyo at all times is that, you know, they're expecting a big earthquake to happen sometime in that area and it might hit on land or it might hit on water and and cause a big tsunami and that is just sort of <laughs> this very unpleasant reality that you can't you know you can't think about all the time or you can't live your life but it's like true that that has to happen and you do have to like face that reality and plan for it and and do whatever you can so Oh, totally. And, uh, you know, one of the most iconic Japanese uh, characters of all time, Godzilla, is the mm. amalgamation of a nuclear and a natural disaster. You know, it is a monster born of nuclear uh, uh, testing. Um, and I'm glad we mentioned Toho earlier. I wouldn't have thought of that. But like you, you speak to a very prescient fear of, you know, people across the world, but very specifically in Japan, is those twin heralds of destruction on the horizon, the the natural one or the man-made one, like which one is going to take us out? Mm. I'm just loving that you're wearing a Godzilla beanie while you're saying all that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, the, in the same way, Blix was wearing this uh, creepy mascot character uh, <laughs> thing while we have Maromi, I'm like... Amazing. Did, did you did you do this on purpose? <laughs> oh, this is so circumstantial. I can't wear t-shirts anymore because I associate it with my old life. So I've been repurposing them into tank tops. And so I, I guess my mind is kind of going to a dark place thinking about the the theme of this show here. Like, I am taking the question seriously. I'm trying to think about uncomfortable truths that I might need to face. And I think for me, it's that we're all going to die. And I think my comfortable narrative is that each day is going to be like the next mm -hmm. you know i'll wake up make breakfast go to work and that that's everything that's my whole existence and that's not the truth um and i've already benefited from challenging that that's why i transitioned so i don't know how much time i have left none of us do i know that's really morbid but there was a lot of death stuff in this show so well, i think this i think it's relevant that i think this is what ben was saying something similar like uh, or around that area that we to deal to 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 cope each day mm -hmm. requires a kind of not dwelling on perfect reality or not thinking entirely of how things can happen the looming disaster that could be coming the fact that death could be tomorrow and you got to you, you can't go forward without a little bit of i guess fantasy that your plans will amount to something that the Tokyo will not be destroyed in hellfire or flood, that you will indeed continue to climb the ranks of your career, whatever it is you're doing, and therefore you should get up today and tomorrow and get to keep doing it. Even though that may not be true, and technically you can tell yourself that a day may come when this all ends or it may not go the way we want, um, to get to that point, you do have to kind of indulge something that's not perfect reality, exact reality. And so, again, I feel like it's not, it's not specifically choosing and saying this is a good way to deal this is a bad way to deal more yeah. that that be careful be careful with your fantasy be careful with the things that you use to cope from day to day 
the, the fact that people, tens of thousands of people die every day in the world is uncomfortable and to the degree that you can't think about it. I mean, if you're, your best friend or a parent or someone else dies, that is earth shattering. But imagine if you felt that way about every single person who died every day, you would never be able to function. None of us would be able to. That's why I love this podcast. It's these conversations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a stepping back from reality that I do think is maybe healthy, but can also be taken too far. Um, and and there's something I think prescient about what you're saying as it relates to the real world and our author here, Satoshi Kon. You know, he died fairly early in his life and fairly early in his career. Um, in fact, like when he died, he was working on another film that was supposed to be maybe I think of all of his works as like his magnum opus because they're so they're all so cohesive and 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 they seem to have his voice in them. But like he died. But in the time he had, look at what he did produce, whether he was afraid of death or not. He understood the inevitability of it through his work, I think. But like he was able to make all of these wonderful things. And if we become too mired in doomerism or too caught up in our, our own trauma, like what are we going to have to show for it at the end of our lives? Are we going to be happy with our own conduct? Like Tsukiko unable to create the next character. Yeah. That's, that's the first conflict in the film, and it's still a problem in the last, uh, almost the last episode. She hasn't come up with anything else. And it seems like somebody else's, it's somebody else's cat, it seems mm -hmm. at the end. It seems like she didn't, she never solves that particular problem. But it doesn't seem to matter. She seems to be in a better place two years forward. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, this is really wonderful. I do want to be respectful of everyone's time. Uh, so does have, anyone have any big thoughts they have to get off their chest before we do our outro stuff? I have, I have one question that I had years ago when I first saw this, and I thought maybe I'll be able to answer it when I watch it again. But I still don't have a, I'm still not sure. When Tsukiko, in the past, young her lets go of the leash, she does so because she suddenly bends over in pain, seemingly holds her abdomen. Mm -hmm. And then the puppy runs into the road and gets run over. And there's shots of the blood you know, sliding across the thing. And my thought way back then was, oh, is this, is this the moment she has her like first menstruation? Is yes. that what just happened? Is that what's going on? And then you get the, what I think is fairly graphic blood splatter from the puppy. I mean, you could have done that in a very tame way and they did, they went for it, you know, mm -hmm. and it's hard for me not to make that association, but there's nothing else about that. There's nothing else to confirm that one way or the other. And I don't know what to think of that because, you know, that is kind of a, a symbol of, of, of beginning adulthood. Mm -hmm. And that's the moment that she creates Shonen Bat and the, and the, the uh, coping mechanisms and everything that happens afterwards. I wasn't sure how far down should you read that if we think that's what happened. Like, how significant is it that that's the thing creates the circumstance for any of this to have happened? Her mm. on the threshold of, of uh, the beginning adulthood, beginning of adolescence. Yeah, it felt like an end of innocence to me, end of childhood, beginning of adolescence, but then also uh, losing her dog. Yeah, I, I guess I had read it as like, it's like this extra level of shame or something or something that would mm. make it that much harder to talk about what had happened oh. with her father. Yeah, yeah, because she doesn't have a mother, yeah, she too. she couldn't talk right? to her father mm. about it. So it becomes a new way they are distanced from each other, uh, potentially. 
Yeah. Um, so I read it as uh, she's having this period, her first menstrual cramps, her first period, presumably. Um, and in some ways, that's like, you know, it, it, we hope for every young person that they have uh, a, a, an amazing transition from childhood into adulthood. But in some ways, like parts of our childhood are sacrificed so that we can become adults, you know, our interests change, our responsibilities change. And I thought maybe that there, in in a place where parts of her childhood would be sacrificed, instead, Maromi is sacrificed. And that's what mm. keeps uh. her in her childhood for another 10 years, keeps her inside of herself, mm. re-experiencing or keep tamping down this trauma for that interminable amount of time, and, you know, she it, it, I think it's it, it speaks to the fact that in that moment, she does not embrace Maromi. She allows it to be this sacrifice, whereas the adult her does not allow that to keep happening. The adult her picks up the dog and says, no, maybe it's not my fault. You know, it's not really I don't think that scene is a matter of fault. I think that scene is a matter of bad things happen and we have to cope with them somehow. Um, and so. You know, she, even though it might not be 100% her fault, that's her uh, accepting her part in the death of this dog. So, like, Shonen Bad is. Um, and maybe accepting the death of her childhood. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're, no, yeah. Just same. Shonen Bad basically becoming a manifestation of her rejection of leaving, in a sense, leaving childhood, which yes. is why she persists. That yes. he is like this refusing to grow up, I guess, kind of thing um, because of the circumstance she's in. And I agree. She's she's still childlike. Ten years later, she still doesn't seem she doesn't she doesn't seem very functional as an adult. Often, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. she has lots of minders. She has her head she's always the head down, always withdrawn, always seems to be coaxed along, totally unprepared for being <laughs> successful and famous. You know, she's always uncomfortable in the interviews. She never seems to take much agency of anything. She is like a child among adults. You know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I like that. I think I like that way of connecting the ideas. Yeah, and it's it's also a beautiful part of the metaphor that uh, Shonen Bat is a young person. Shonen Bat is an mm -hmm. eighth grader, someone in the throes of adolescence, and is eternally that way. Mm. That was a great well, show. Good stuff, yeah. That was a good show. <laughs> Thank you for ending it with us. This was such a treat to have you on again, Theta. Likewise. Yeah. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. So if if people want to find more of you, I, what are you doing these days? I saw maybe you were covering Chainsaw Man, which sounds fascinating. I did do that. That was the thing we watched last uh, last season. Um, I, I've scaled back the stuff I do on YouTube to basically yeah. nothing until I'm ready to relaunch. Sure. But I continue to follow seasonal shows on Twitch and occasionally do other things as well. Yeah. And Thank last season we did Chainsaw Man, which is not the kind of thing that would normally fall into my wheelhouse if you just read the premise of this and read like the genre tags you would think why why is this you this is a <laughs> is a bleach like and and it's not the not the kind of things we normally think of but it was fantastic to cover because it's it's both very loud and very quiet hmm. and i knew there was enough buzz about it that it was just not going to be the same thing i've seen several times before and uh, so i'm glad i pulled the trigger on that because we had a ton of things to discuss the way characters are, again, very loud, but also very quiet parts to them, very obvious readings, and then things you have to work for to kind of extract out of 
the text of what's going on and very fascinating world building and some fascinating characters on top of a lot of loud kind of nonsense characters or, or a mascot character kind of thing. It manages to walk the line between being just very obviously entertaining and having quite a bit for us to uh, to discuss. So that's what I did this past season, this current season. We're covering Vinland Saga Season 2 because right. I covered Season 1 way back in the day, which is a historical drama Viking Age kind of thing, the early 11th century. And that's just an, that's just an incredibly well-produced show all the way around. And in fact, it feels more like watching like a HBO miniseries most weeks than watching an anime series mm-hmm. in the sense of the kind the kind of things that are explored by the characters, the way they are characterized, the groundedness of different things that happen, the lofty themes that are played with. Uh, so that's what they're doing this this uh, this current season, which is a shame because not a shame. I'm enjoying it, but there's some new stuff this season that I, I kind of wish I had time to talk about. This is like the season of interesting gender discussion in several anime, oh. um, running really running the gamut of things. But uh, it, it's a weird concentration of we've got three different shows that in their very premiere had a boy suddenly put into a girl's body, and then how they're going to deal with that going forward. And, and the way that's handled really runs the really runs the gamut to not very well to really kind of a fascinating look to almost ignoring it. Um, and then a story about a girl who has trouble getting her crush to see her as a girl. So all about what makes me feminine or not, what, what makes me code this way or that. And it's just, it's just interesting to have them happening all at the same time. And we can flip week to week, been comparing how this one's doing this, or this issue is being discussed by this, and this one's handling it delicately, and this one's not so much. And so it's a, there's a fascinating lineup of shows on right this second that I think are, they are gaining from being on at the same time, I guess. So I wish I had enough time in the day to talk about all of them, is I guess what I'm saying. Well, I, need, I need to check out the new shows. And how again can people find you on, on YouTube or, or what website? Nearly on Red is my the name of my various things nearlyonred.com youtube slash nearly on red and twitch as well and how do, how do you spell that uh, nearly n-e-a-r-l-y on o-n red like the color r-e-d so the same place youtube twitch website there will all be the twitter also although i'm not really active on twitter those are all the same things Sorry, thank you for pointing that out. I, did, I skipped nah, right yeah. over that. <laughs> I want to talk about the stories. That's the part I care about. Not me. I'm not important. <laughs> I'm just the messenger. So, yeah, if yeah, someone likes Paranoia beta. Agent. <laughs> if someone enjoyed Paranoia Agent and they're a masochist, what would you recommend? <laughs> I mean, obviously the other Satoshi Kone things, because I feel like they build off each other. Absolutely. Um, you've already done Serial Experiments Lane, which I agree has some, some crossover here. Um you know, I'm going to suggest something that maybe came from left field, but people who know the series might understand what I'm meaning, which is Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. Ooh. How many times has that been recommended? It comes out <laughs> right, but but I think the that idea of the social contagion is very relevant to that series. Okay. So not just the general cyberpunk kind of thing, but specifically standalone complex season one. Hmm. Is is relevant to to what's goes on okay. in this? Yeah. I am getting curious to watch. I that am one too. Now. Now. Okay. Keep coming up. 
We might have to take a look at it. We'll definitely discuss it. Uh, anything else? Or can we do our, our beautiful sign off and, you know, call this series a wrap? Okay, cool. Blixus, take us off. Are we ready? Okay. Pen. Pen. Pals. Satoshi. 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 Oh.